This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by LifeWay, publisher of The Sermon on the Mount Bible Study by Jen Wilkin. In this nine-session study, Wilkin invites readers to examine and learn from Jesus' longest recorded message and challenge themselves to think differently about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. With your purchase, you'll also receive access to this study's video sessions. Get your copy today at lifeway.com slash Sermon on the Mount. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by Baker Academic, presenting Colossians and Philemon by G.K. Beale, a must-have commentary for pastors and scholars. Learn more at bakeracademic.com. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Today's podcast is a discussion between Mike Cosper and Alan Noble on speaking the truth in a distracted age. It was recorded at our 2019 National Conference in Indianapolis. What we're here to talk about is kind of life in a secular age. Um, We've both written books on the topic that uh, have kind of deep roots in the work of Charles Taylor, um, which Alan will talk about here in just a moment. But... Uh, It's just going to be kind of a a conversation between the two of us for a little bit, and then hopefully we'll have some time to open up for questions as well. So if you if you questions pop into mind as as we go, write them down, and and we should have some time for that before we wrap. Uh, So Alan, why don't you give the fifty thousand foot view of of the eight hundred page eight hundred page book with tiny print of uh, tome? Yeah, yeah. Um, How many? Has anybody here read a secular age? We got we got a couple we got a couple. Derek, put your hand down. You didn't read. Anyway, uh, a secular age. It's a wonderful book. It, um, Jamie Smith's book, uh, How Not to Be Secular, is a great summary of it. I uh, don't really recommend that most people read it because it's it's a lot of pages and it's not all that easy to read. But it's wonderful um, to understand. I once heard Miroslav Volf talk about give a lecture about the book, yeah. and he he like a few minutes into kind of talking about the book, he paused and he sighed real heavily, and he goes, <gasps> "Charles needed an editor." <laughs> I feel so much better because I'm going to quote him from now on because I've said that repeatedly, and I always feel like I'm casting aspersions. But no, yeah. if Volf said it, then I'll just I'll just quote him, and then it's not so bad. Yeah. Uh, all right, so for the both of our books uh, really work based on Taylor's concept of secularism, and I don't know about you guys, but when I heard the term secularism growing up in evangelical circles, it tended to mean something like the world or atheists or the, the boogeyman out there. It tended to be something out there, um, and that's not what that's not what Taylor means. Uh, Taylor's thinking about secularism <clears throat> not in terms of a, a, of a belief system, but almost you could think of it as a, an openness to lots of different belief systems. Um, this, is, this is how he defines it. The shift in secularity in this sense consists, among other things, of a move from a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to one in which it is understood to be one option among others and frequently not the easiest to embrace. Now, let me me put some meat on that so that you you can understand this. So if you imagine that I lived in uh, Germany in the 1400s, I would be born a Christian, I would live as a Christian, and I would die as a Christian. Now, I, in the 20th and 21st century, I was born into a Christian family, I was raised Christian, and Lord willing, I will die a Christian. So on the surface, they might seem very similar. 
But, but Taylor's point is that there's something categorically different about the experience of being a believer then compared to now. Here's, here's one way of getting to that difference. My entire life, even though I was also like that medieval man raised as a Christian, I always knew I had options. I didn't have to be Christian. I knew lots of people who lived uh, very interesting, exciting, maybe even fulfilling lives uh, from the outside who believed things that were very different than, than how I was raised uh, to believe things. <clears throat> this is the modern experience of being in the world. Uh, you, everything is contested. Everything is contested. You're always hyper aware that you have other options available to you, other religions or no religion at all. Another aspect of secularism that he talks about is something called the eminent frame. He says we all live in, in the eminent frame. Uh, maybe an easy way to understand this is the sort of the material world, but that doesn't quite get to the heart of it because Taylor's criticism is not that secularism is just out there among unbelievers, but it is sort of a basic condition of all of us. Even Christians tend to have a secular understanding of the world in the way he means it, which is we are always aware that we have other options available to us. And we think about the world in terms of the eminent frame. Let me give you an example to explain what this eminent frame is. Again, it's a, it's a kind of materialist understanding of the world. And you might say, Alan, and I would say, actually, it's Dr. Noble, uh, but thank you. <laughs> uh, you'd say, Dr. Noble, um, I'm a Christian. I don't, I don't believe in a materialist world, right? I mean, I, I believe in miracles. I believe Christ rose from the dead. So clearly, I'm not secularist in the way Charles Taylor uh, talks about it. I get that. I get that. But let's play a little game here. Uh, rainbows are really fascinating. Rainbows are really fascinating. <clears throat> I've seen over the past few years a number of commentators talk about the LGBTQ's use, community's use of the rainbows as, a, as an image, as a sort of part of their brand. And the objection from conservative Christians, which is beside the point for my purposes here, is that they're taking something that is a sign given by God that he will not flood the earth again, and they're using it for uh, you know, a movement that is opposed to biblical sexual ethics. You know, it's kind of offensive in that sense. Now again, setting aside the, all that you know, debate, what I find fascinating about this is I think for the vast, vast majority of evangelicals, we do not think about rainbows as a sign from God, and we haven't for a long, long time. Think back to the way when you see a rainbow, how do you respond to it? I think you've got three basic options. One is you elbow the person next to you and say, ah, look, there's a rainbow. Two, you take a photo of it, and you post it on Instagram and say, ah, look, here's a rainbow. It's uh, so intense. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, or maybe it's a double rainbow. Uh, three, uh, three. you think back to the scientific explanation of what rainbows are that you learned in elementary school if you were not homeschooled like me. I'm sure there is an explanation for rainbows. I don't know what it is. Um, maybe under that third interpretation of how you perceive rainbows, maybe you think, oh, that's right. God actually created this. Part of its design is to tell us something about his relationship to us. So it's not just a material phenomenon, not just a natural phenomenon. It has some transcendent significance. But if we get to that, and I think most of us don't, it's probably beneath the more naturalist understanding. And I think that's a good way of understanding the imminent frame. It's not like all of us Christians are walking around thinking in purely materialist terms, but it's kind of our default. It's hard for us to perceive the world as something created and sustained and preserved by a living God who loves us and died on the cross for our sins and preserves us. So um, that's the imminent frame. It also involves things like expressive individualism. We won't, we won't get into that, but that's a, that's a kind of short version of, uh, of what what Taylor's talking about. Did I miss anything that you think needs to be? No, I mean, the other way I think about the imminent frame is if you sort of imagine your thoughts as these sort of thought balloons, right, where you're trying to understand your life, understand your world, understand your reality, you, you will come to a point where you bump your head on the ceiling with, with the, this idea of this imminent frame that sort of covers our, uh, our, our thought patterns. 
Um, you eventually bump your head on the ceiling when you get to certain transcendent ideas. And, and it's this, this, it's not, oh, I don't believe this. It's this nagging voice in the back of your head that kind of goes, really? Do you, do you really think that rainbow is a covenantal thing? Or is it just, you know, a vapor, water vapor and light thing? Is that really what it is? That's really what it is. Thanks. So, um, so yeah, I think that's, I think that is a really helpful way, uh, to, to frame that, um, and part of Taylor's point is that it's hard. I think that bubble idea is helpful because it's possible for contemporary people to um, to conceive of the transcendent, but it's hard work. Mm-hmm. Our default is to understand it in purely naturalist terms, including people in the church. It's difficult for us to conceptualize a God that is actually living, what, what Taylor calls the, the open eminent frame. So we're still here. This is still a, kind of our default setting, but we can acknowledge that there is a, a transcendent God. So it, yeah. it, it takes work. Yeah. Yeah, so for me, I um, my, my bridge to Taylor was the work of James K.A. Smith, um, starting with uh, some of the stuff in his books, Desiring the Kingdom and Imagining the Kingdom. And I made the mistake of reading the 800-page book right before... Jamie's little hundred page brief on it, which is really so good. You really don't need to read the 800 page book. But um, I found my, I found Taylor's description of religious experience almost like he was reading my mail. Um, This was my experience, my experience with faith and doubt. And it, it really rocked my world. Um, At the time I was in the midst of writing a book on the spiritual disciplines and trying to kind of understand, like, how do spiritual disciplines, you know, shape our lives and, and, and trying to really contextualize that. And that's what led me to Taylor. And it wrecked my whole thesis for the book. Um, it, re- it really did. And I, I turned the book in 20 months late. It was, it was a long time, a long process of working out um, the ideas behind Recapturing the Wonder because it, it so rocked my foundations for thinking about faith. Because I think the, you know, I think this issue, this... This, this issue of life in a secular world really is the primary challenge uh, to spiritual formation in our time. Mm. We have to find ways to get underneath and, and past these, you know, these boundaries of sort of plausibility in order to get to a place where we really uh, can engage in thoughtful and uh, authentic communion with God through the means that he's given us, spiritual disciplines, the gathered church, et cetera, et cetera. So when you say plausibility, we've got to get through this plausibility in discipleship, right? Yeah. So let's say you have a community group or something, a small group meeting. Presumably those people, you know, at least they're confessing these things, right? So they'll confess Christ rose from the dead for their sins. So when you say plausibility, haven't they already gotten through that? Yeah, I think, you know, back to back to sort of Taylor's notion of this is um, where it becomes interesting in a, in a community group, you know, session or something like that is if somebody says, I feel like the Lord is telling me X, Y, or Z. Hmm. The, the presumption, I think, in the part of others in the group oftentimes, and even uh, internally, this, there's this internal dialogue that goes along with this, is, is, is God really telling you that or is that just something you ate, you know? Is God really telling you that, or is that just what you want to do anyway? Um, the the way we, I think, needle other people's religious experience with our own kind of questions about, is that even possible? Uh, a recent example of this for me is a, a friend of mine is part of a church where they've had, over the last uh, couple of months, they've had some pretty crazy experiences with healing prayer in, in this gathering. And... Not only, not only did I react with kind of like a, really? Is that really going on? Did somebody really grow arches in their feet while you prayed for like that? Okay, that sounds crazy. Not only am I reacting that way, the pastors that are doing this praying and watching this stuff happen are going, I don't know what this is. I can't explain this. This is weird. This is bizarre. This is crazy. Uh, That's life in a secular age. That's belief under the condition of doubt. That's pastoring and leading the church under the conditions of doubt. Because even watching things happen, watching people, whether you're watching people move from death to life through, through salvation, or whether you're watching people experience healing, uh, physical or emotional or whatever, um, there is, you know, the, the reality of secularism is there is this nagging, needling condition of doubt. 
That's very helpful. Yeah, the other way, I think this, this, this the challenge of plausibility can work out in that sort of small group setting can be that, you know, it's one thing to mentally, uh, you know, confess certain things, right, and attest. And, you know, in a world where our institutions are crumbling, the church provides a wonderful community, and uh, which is a good thing, which is a, a very good thing. But I think it is possible for people, and I, and I think this happens all over, for people to get involved, and the community is really the faith, right? Uh, and and the, the faith becomes a lifestyle, and it has a language, it has a certain kind of dress, it has a certain kind of... Uh, uh, values, and you give, you know, mental assent to certain things, but um, I'm not all that convinced that, that, that uh, all of those people actually, uh, in, in a deep, meaningful way, believe that Christ rose from the dead. Um, now, that's not something I would go to somebody and say, like, in my small group, I don't think you believe in the resurrection, right? Because that would be, that's how I get kicked out of small groups, but... Um, <laughs> But 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 uh, um, but I will say that I think the way we structure churches, the way we talk about faith, what it can do is it can lend itself to putting religion into a sort of lifestyle box, which makes it very easy to say during you know Easter time, hey, this is great, I'm celebrating the resurrection. But what it really means is I'm having fun with with my friends in my local community. Um, and, and I would say I think to be fair historically. I think the idea of sort of being culturally appropriated into quote unquote Christianity has always been a factor. Sure. What's in, what's unique to our time is that this this kind of exists without the possibility of transcendence, right? We're right. we're participating in it and and we're participating in a religion that lacks mystery, that lacks um, that lacks a certain kind of beauty, um, that lacks a certain kind of expectation. Uh, I mean, we were just talking about this upstairs, and um, uh, I don't mean to get ahead of ourselves, but, you know, I think in, for those of us that are in ministry, one of the ways that, that this sort of secular phenomenon shows up is that when we think about our church gatherings or our church events, we feel a burden as church leaders to make something happen. Mm-hmm. Like, I got to make sure this experience feels like something is happening, um, and underneath that is the doubt that, you know, if we just preach the gospel, read the scriptures, serve the sacraments, et cetera, um, uh, I'm not sure if we do those things that God's really going to show up and people are really going to feel something. So I got to make them feel something. I got to get to work and make sure people feel something. Yeah. So they're not recognizing the objective reality that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, God is present. Right. Because, Taylor would say, that's difficult for us to understand. It's difficult for us to con- conceive. It's easy to say, you know, I believe that this is what happens. It's another thing to actually internalize that and believe it. So when you want to stir up these feelings, you're going to have to create an event. You're going to have to make things more showy, more interesting to grab attention. Um, that's Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I'd love, Alan, maybe for you to talk a little bit about, because um, this is something you've explored a lot in your work is um, how secularism has shaped the church's witness and uh, you know this is my term for it but it's failure of witness um, uh, in our yeah in our time I'd love to hear you yeah so I think uh, you know as you were talking about church services I was thinking about uh, Charles Taylor's idea of excarnation which I I find really helpful so we all know what incarnation is Charles Taylor coins this term excarnation to refer to um, this move upward into our heads, out of our bodies, and a focus in our heads. And I had the same exact reaction to as you did when reading Taylor. I felt like, wow, he's describing what it was like to be in church for most of my life. For most of my life, I would go to church. Uh, there was a period in my life where I would intentionally skip the worship service because I don't like the music, and I felt like it was extra. The purpose of church is just to hear a good lecture, so I'm going to skip the music, right? I know it's horrific, but just bear with me. It gets better. <laughs> Sanctification. So, um, and then when I got there, even if I did sing, right, I was part of the worship, the music was so loud, and I actually felt alone together 
alone together with all these other people. It was like me in my head. And so like I would be hearing, singing these songs and I would be praying them just to God. And there happened to be a lot of other people around me, but they were doing their own thing. And there was no sense of community. I mean, we, just, we were just around each other. And uh, the sermon was between me and God. And it was this, this, this focus between me and God. Uh, and Taylor, Taylor talks about this as, as part of excarnation. And, and I do think this is a, this is a problem. Um, you know, it feeds into individualism, and it's, it is a problem for the witness of our church. Um, to, get, to, to speak a little bit about what my book about, is about, um, thinking about witness and bearing witness to the faith, uh, part of what I'm concerned about is that taking what Charles Taylor's talking about with secularism, which in general flattens belief and um, it, it, it flattens belief and it, um, it flattens belief and makes things difficult to, uh, to penetrate as far as, as these ideas. And so um, uh, my concern is uh, technology actually connects and makes all of those things worse. Um, so... Uh, the distance that we feel between the transcendent, the difficulty we have of understanding transcendence, um, I think technology just makes a lot, a lot harder. Um, and so my book is just sort of exploring how those two things connect and, and work together. Yeah, give, him, give us a little more on how, how technology makes you know, a sense of transcendence more difficult. Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, so there, this, this appears in all sorts of ways. So one way is that churches um, unreflectively adopt technology because it's here and uh, because people want it. Um, but that can distance us from human interaction. So I've, I've been suggesting churches not to use um, or not to allow smartphones uh, in the service. I know it's really wonderful. It's really convenient to use the Bible translation on your phone, uh, but it's also, once you're there, very easy to start, I don't know, live tweeting, uh, text messaging, um, and then it kind of just goes downhill from there, right? Um, uh, so, so that's that's a place where here we are. We're celebrating corporately uh, the Lord's Supper. We're confessing our sins together. We're doing all these things that are inherently acknowledging that the world is created by God, that we serve Him, and that He's alive. And these screens mediate that experience for us in a way that's utterly unnecessary, uh, except for you know you know specific um, exceptions, right? Um, so that's one way that th that happens. Another effective technology that I think is, is difficult when it comes to bearing witness to the faith is that um, technology crowds out our minds. I think the, the, the experience of most of us is that we don't have a lot of empty brain space. Um, it's very possible, and in fact, it is the experience of many people in our time, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, that you are plugged into something. And that's only going to get easier, right? I mean, you've never had this much access to high-quality content streaming in your pocket. And if you ever want to, if you ever find yourself alone in the elevator, in bed, and you feel a sense of, of dread, of anxiety, that, that dread and anxiety of being alone with yourself and having to think through your day and your experiences, uh, you have an aid to save you. Uh, your phone, your smartphone, can save you from having to be alone with yourself. And I, and I used to say that uh, I think actually when I was writing the book that the shower was the you know the, that's sort of the last place. And then they made you know water resistant phones, so uh, we're kind of screwed. Like there is no space where technology, uh, you know, it, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And here's where I worry. Let's say we you have a wonderful conversation with someone about the gospel and they walk away, and they immediately pull out their phone, and you know, maybe you've planted some good seeds, but the gospel is cognitively taxing. You've, you've got to think about it. You, you need to be convicted of your sins in order to understand the need for Christ. But, but if you can just divert your attention, Pascal talks a lot about diversion, if you can divert your attention all the time, you really don't need this. Um, and so when you combine that kind of, that, that, a, a cultural uh, uh, barrier 
to contemplating faith with a cultural barrier of understanding transcendence, uh, it's a perfect storm. Yeah, I think that's right on because I think fundamental to understanding the gospel is uh, is reckoning with our pain and our brokenness and our sorrow over our sin. And there's nothing better than technology to numb you from your pain and your brokenness and your sorrow over your sin. Uh, we don't like negative emotions. We don't want to experience negative emotions. And if I can, if I can crowd out shame by distracting myself... Um, what I could inevitably do is never reckon with it and never reckon with the real state of my soul. And I think that's a, I think that's a problem for, for Christians as much as it is for anyone else um, because this is a place we need to be continually returning. Uh, this is a reality we need to continually be returning to in repentance as part of the maturing process of the Christian life. So it's not just a matter, it's not just a question of evangelism, though I think that's really important. It's a question of sanctification too. Um, Another thing I, th I think that's important when we talk about technology and the way technology gets imported into the church is that technology has an inherent meaning and an inherent message that gets carried with it. I remember the first time I was actually at a conference, um, the first time that I saw somebody read scripture from the stage from their phone. And it was the most distracting thing I've ever seen in my life um, during a worship service. Because as soon as I saw their phone, my brain started going, oh, that's a phone. I wonder what's on that phone. I wonder what kind of phone that is. I wonder what else is happening. Is he getting text messages right now? Did he turn his texts off? Is he on Do Not Disturb? I guess if he's on Do Not Disturb and it's open, he still can get the text messages. Someone should text him right now. That'd be hilarious. And it just kept going. And and I think, you know, I mean, we're sitting here with iPads, so maybe yeah. there's some hypocrisy in this. But, but we're uh, not reading scripture. But so. we're not reading scripture. And this ain't church, people. Um, it's not. But, you know, the other example... The other example Alan and I were talking about earlier today, the one that, that gets to me so much, is image magnification. Um, so this is when you're in a, in a large church room. I mean, they're doing it in here uh, right now. Uh, I don't mean to be digging on TGC. I love TGC. Thank God for TGC. Um, but let's talk about image magnification for a second because uh, technology carries meaning with it uh, when you import it. And where else in your life do you encounter image magnification? And by that I mean, you know, the cameras set up around the room, zoomed in on the preacher's face, uh, broadcasting that on big screens. See this a lot in big churches. Um, we think, you know, the, the argument for it is a good argument. Like it's maybe in a big space, it's more engaging. You're you're more able to see the facial expressions. It's a little more creates an intimacy that you wouldn't have otherwise. But then you have to ask the question: Well, what else do we use this technology for? Where else do we see it? We see it at rock concerts, we see it at sporting events, and we see it at political rallies. And those are places where the people on the screen are heroes. They're superheroes. They're rock stars. They're, you know, it's, it's Barack Obama or it's Donald Trump, and they're going to fix everything. And so we import that technology, and we put a pastor on that screen, and we wonder why we have problems with idolizing pastors and with celebrity pastor culture. Um, this, I think... This, I think, all goes along with sort of these, um, these realities of secularism, this, these realities of disenchantment, because, again, we're trying to make something happen because we don't have a great deal of confidence in the tools God has given the church whereby he promises to meet us and extend grace to us. So another way of understanding this is, so, you know, Taylor's point is that everything is contested. All faith systems are contested, and Christianity becomes one option, but it's one uh, among billions of options available to us. As Christians, the, we know that's, not, that's simply not true. That's simply not true. Our faith is, is the truth. It's categorically different. Um, but when the faith is presented by Christians as a really good option to improve your life, to make your life better, uh, to find, uh, to improve your family, right? To, uh, to find community, right? When we speak in these terms, we have to recognize that the people hearing that are also hearing that ex exact same language from uh, other institutions, other companies, other brands, people selling lifestyle options to them. And I think, you know, the, the, the point about image magnification is, is a great example. So, 
if you're conditioned to see people blown up on the screen in a certain way, as, as you pointed out, as a, as a kind of hero or a kind of icon or as a kind of idol, um, and you go to a church and you see the same thing, what can happen, perhaps not on a conscious level, is that you, you see these as all options available to you. They're all sort of flattened out. The church is not distinct. It's not categorically different. It's not offering some truth about reality. It's offering uh, one lifestyle option, just like uh, you know, being into a certain kind of band or being into a certain kind of political party or movement is, a, is an option available to you. Or attending a Tony Robbins seminar. Which, which feels a whole lot like attending a contemporary church service. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, here's what scares me. If that's the case, okay, what happens um, when, as is increasingly the case, uh, it is less and less socially acceptable to adhere to biblical orthodoxy on things like sexuality? Right? And if Christianity is just like, if your church experience is just like a Tony Robinson event, right? It's a great lifestyle option that promises to improve your life. Well, what if it's not improving your life? What if it's actually making your life a lot harder because you're really unpopular, right? And people are, you know, calling you bigot or whatever it might be. Then all of a sudden, I need to find a better lifestyle option. And there are lots available to you. And that, that, that scares me. That scares me. And, and I would just stick with Tony Robbins for one more second because I think it's <laughs> fascinating. Um, there's a great documentary about Tony Robbins called I'm, I'm Not Your Guru. It's on Netflix. Um, and it kind of walks you through what one of these seminars is like. It's fascinating. And the reality is, like, Christians are often uncomfortable seeding this ground. Uh, but I'm, I'm not because I think it's true because I know people who've done, done the seminars. Is Those things will change your life. They will dramatically change your life. Because it's going to, you know, basically what he's going to help you do is help you clarify, this is who I want to be, and this is the lifestyle I need to live in order to be who I want to be, and I'm going to become somebody radically different. And the, the church, the church puts itself in a position where they're saying, we want to compete with that. Yeah. Uh, we we want to be the alternative to that, and, and we're going to change your life. And the fact is that that most pastors are not equipped to run their churches like a Tony Robbins seminar and are not going to be as effective, are not going to be as charismatic, are not going to be as dramatic uh, a sort of encounter to create that kind of life change. We have to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit showing up and doing his work to transform people's lives and hearts. Uh, Because if we try to compete at a, at a flatline level, at a, at a, in a sense, godless level, not in a, you know, pagan way, but in a, in a way that's not dependent upon the work of the Spirit. If we try to compete like that, we will fall short. We're not that talented. We're not that charismatic. But we don't need that in order to be effectively carrying out God's mission. And, and, and here's one of the ways we'll lose, too. So that, you know, if Tony Robinson is saying, uh, I will help you become the person you want to be, here's, here's the rough thing. Christianity says you don't get to choose who you want to be. Not entirely. There are some pretty firm limits. And that we're called towards righteousness, towards sanctification, and the church does help you grow in that, right? And it does change you, but it's not like, okay, I want to be uh, a CEO, right? And I want to have this kind of family, and I want to marry this kind of person, and that, that's, that's not the role of the church. And um, this is difficult for us as modern people because one of the things that we're taught continually is that to live a fulfilling life, you have to identify who you want to be and you have to achieve that. You have to seek it out. You have to achieve it. You need to actuate your, your individuality. And, and the church says, well, uh, you need to grow in Christ-likeness. And uh, some of the things that you identify as part of your individuality are sinful desires that you need to you know, orient toward the good. Um, and as you said, if we're competing, if it's, you know, Tony Robinson style or uh, the church, the church is not, that's not popular. Nobody wants to say die to yourself. Like that's not a, that, that doesn't sell. Um, I'm trying to decide if I should correct you that it's Tony Robbins or if that would be a jerk no. move. Who's Tony Robinson? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Who, what have we been talking about? I don't know. <laughs> Because I don't go to those kinds of things. Watch the documentary. Okay, I don't do that. I believe in Jesus. <laughs> um, 
one of the things you, you talk about a lot. And Did you decide whether you want to correct me or not? I, I'm going to let it go. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I'm okay. going to be more mature about it yeah, than I, I, I wanted to be. I appreciate that. Um, one of the things you write about, uh, you tweet about, you, uh, you, you actively participate in is uh, social media, the role of social yeah, media and all of this. I heard about it. Um, <laughs> I'd, love for you, I'd love for you to talk about the, the role social media plays in, in these dynamics. Yeah, so, um, you know, the medium is the message, but the, uh, some of these mediums are pretty fluid, and you can do lots of different things with them. Um, you know, posting pictures on Instagram, I mean, you can post a lot of different kinds of things, and you can shape your content, say, shape your message to do lots of different kinds of things. So I think we have a lot of freedom, and I think there are ways to use social media that do not trivialize the faith and make it just another sort of secular option, that don't treat it as just a, you know, a lifestyle choice. Um, but I will say that, that there is a kind of cultural momentum so that the people who are in charge of communication teams at churches and things, when they, when they think about, okay, how do I tell the people in my area right, what we're doing, your default is going to look to to be to look to businesses, and what they're doing, right? Uh, and they are not offering something transcendent. They're just fundamentally not, right? Um, and so I, I think the first thing we need to think about is, okay, what what are the models that we are looking at? Are we are we treating this in the same way as we're treating other things? Um, and uh, that that's a hard conversation to have, I think, for a lot of people. Um, the other thing I'd say is that. You know, using social media to talk about our faith <coughs> is not, um, this is best done in person. Uh, and, and, and I think I, I, I don't ever encourage people to shy away from talking about faith on social media, but um, I will say that, that when you have a platform where people are arguing about basketball, and politics, and uh, you know, a TV show, and you know, a Marvel movie, and um, the resurrection. Um, I don't know that that's all that great. But here, here's the flip side, though: is I, I want to say, you know, when there's, for example, a Nash, you know, a, a tragedy or something, we should not be afraid to say, you know, God help us. Or something to that effect. Or, or, or when somebody's suffering online, you should not feel afraid to say, "I, you know, I'm praying for you," as long as you're actually doing that. Um, so, so what? I, don't hear me. What I'm not saying is don't talk about your faith online because it's inherently going to trivialize it. That's I don't think that it, that is true. But I do think our default is to use the rhetoric and style that we'll see from uh, the business world, and that's that's categorically different. We need to get away from that. Um, and then we need to think about, okay, what are sincere ways of talking about our faith? And how can we shift those into in-person conversations where it's a lot easier to, to, to demonstrate these things? That's good. Um, so just thinking about time here, should we talk a little bit about what we're not saying so we have some time to get to questions? What, what time do we have until 5.30? We have until 5.30. We better get to a couple of these. Yeah. So, so one of the things you know we wanted to talk a little bit about is um, having had these projects, these books out for a little while, and interacted with some people on them. Um, we've seen certain questions kind of reemerge again and again. And one of the ones that I've encountered the most in my book. So I talk a lot about disenchantment. I talk a lot about secularism. I talk a lot about how we live in this sort of disenchanted, irreligious uh, age. You know, conditioned by doubt, et cetera. And uh, a good friend of mine is a guy who, uh, by the name of David Dark, and David published a book about the same time I did called Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. And David's you know, thesis in his book is that everyone's religious, all behavior is inherently religious, it's inherently performative, you know, working towards righteousness. Uh, you can't separate your anthropology from religion because we're inherently religious creatures. Um, and so... David has, has sort of challenged me from time to time on the book and on Twitter um, uh, about this idea of, you know, how can you say we live in a, in a world without transcendence or with whatever, because inherently that's not true. And so I think it's helpful when we're, when we're talking about, uh, 
what you know, Taylor's project, when we're talking about secularism and disenchantment, we're talking about people's experience of the world. We're not primarily talking about, uh, we're, we're not describing the realities. Um, Taylor's not saying this is the way the world really truly is, that we're trapped in this world of eminence and there is no transcendence, et cetera. He's saying this is the framework for how we've seen, how we've seen the world. The reality is we are religious creatures. We are inherently religious. The reality is the transcendence does exist, and it's, it's beautiful, and, and there are these cultural moments where it breaks through, either in, you know, either in moments of, of great beauty or in moments of great tragedy. Uh, the transcendence has its way of breaking through mm -hmm. the imminent frame. Um, so I think that's a helpful thing to kind of keep in mind when, when you hear this conversation. We're not saying... Uh, you know, religion has no validity. We're not saying, uh, we're certainly not saying that people aren't inherently religious anymore. People are going on these spiritual quests, um, but they're finding the answers to their spiritual questions through secular means. Uh, and a great book that actually just came out today on the topic is by David Zoll. It's called Seculosity. And he looks at work and health and fitness and parenting and these various things and looks at the ways they've become our new, you know, our new categories for religion, and that they function like religions, and they, they, in the same way that the law can crush us without God's grace, these secular religions can actually crush us. They're, they're just as soul-crushing as well. Um, he wrote a really interesting op-ed in the Washington Post about this, this college admission scandal. Um, and what he talks about in this thing is, you know, if, if parenting and if success are religions... Um, then you're willing to sacrifice all kinds of things, including your integrity, in order to achieve what you think is, uh, is the, the sort of religious ideal, uh, to, to get that righteousness, you know, that, no, I'm okay, my kid got into USC, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever to get there. Um, and that ultimately, again, the result is that the, the religion, that law will, will crush you like any other. That's good. Let's take some questions. We only have 14 minutes left. Yeah, so, sounds good to me. All the way in the back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, in the bookstore. Uh, yeah, and there's still copies sitting there. I checked, and I was uh, a little disappointed. But yeah, so it's it it. it so that's that's a really fascinating question to me because you know if we're if we are in this secular age right and if we have these technologies of distraction that make it difficult to encourage people to contemplate things like their own need for Christ, okay, what happens when I sit down with a coworker if I worked at a non-Christian place, but if I sit down with a coworker and I share the gospel with them. Uh, and they're really not thinking in the, ca in the same categories as me. So when I talk about Jesus and how he's changed my life, he's thinking of Tony Robbins. <laughs> Robbins, just one? That's it? Why do people go see him? Robbins? Let's see, it could be Robinson. Anyway, so, you know, he's thinking those sort of in those sort of categories, right? So he might say to me, hey, I'm really glad that that's been, that church has been good for you and your family. You know, have you considered CrossFit? Because it's been really good, you know, it's kind of turned my life around, you know? And, uh, you know, maybe he gives me a pamphlet, right? <laughs> instead of leaving a tract, instead of me giving him a tract, right? He's like, hey, you can come to my gym, right? It's going to turn you, this is what you need to get your life in shape, Alan. And I'll be like, Dr. Noble. Um, so, <laughs> right? So this is, this is a really important question, right? How do we get, and, and Mike pointed to something. He just mentioned something a couple minutes ago. It probably slipped by. Uh, hopefully it didn't because it was really good. But he talked about moments and experiences of, of, of beauty and tragedy. And Taylor talks about these, and I, and I just think that these are... So here's a concept Taylor talks about. He, he says we all live within cross pressures. So even though we live in a secular age, nobody fails to desire or be oriented toward the transcendent. Okay, If you have a child... You watch your child being born. That is a, a moment where you recognize some, some aspect of human beauty and loveliness in the world that is, in a way, transcendent. And now, you can explain it scientifically. You, know, you can you know, uh, photograph the new baby and, and, and turn it into and, and mediate that experience. But when you're in that moment, you recognize that there is some beauty and truth in this world that is powerful and it hits you viscerally. A similar thing happens when you, when you lose a loved one. 
right? Uh, throughout literature, so I teach literature, there's, there's a, a common trope, and, and that is that when someone, uh, a character loves, dies, the character wishes that the world would stop. And I think that is a kind of basic uh, reaction to death, the death of a loved one. It seems like all the world should recognize this is eternally tragic. It's not just me. All of you should be recognizing. Nobody should be going to work today. We should be stopping to recognize a human has lost their life today. Okay, so in those moments, when you're thinking about apologetics, I think as we come alongside, we build relationships with people, and they naturally go through these moments of beauty and tragedy, having a way to lean into those moments, to not explain them away, to not medicate them away, to not mediate them, but to offer a framework that actually validates those experiences and say, says, this is why you're feeling like this. It's not irrational. It's not a purely chemical problem. No, you're recognizing the truth about the universe. Here's how you can make sense of that. Um, and that's a, but I also have a book. <laughs> and I would just Disruptive add, witness. I just have one thought to that, which I'm is, I think a lot of times when we talk apologetics with people, we cede a whole lot of ground um, immediately because, you know, for instance, when, when apologetics in the Bible comes up, um, it's interesting to me how quickly we go to, well, here are all of the, uh, here are all the scientifically verifiable ways that I can tell you that these texts are as accurate as they possibly can be, and, you know, all of the, all of the evidence that we have that backs this up, you know, evidence that demands a verdict, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And don't get me wrong, I think all of that is worthwhile, but fundamentally, we've ceded a certain ground saying, I have to prove to you on your terms that this thing, that this book is what it says it is, um, when, when I think fundamentally, uh, one of the challenges, one of, one of the opportunities that we have as the church is to go, I want you to encounter this. So, so we can talk all this historical stuff, but I have confidence that this is the word of God, and it's alive, and it's fiery, and it's powerful. And if you immerse yourself in it, um, if you taste and see, uh, you'll find that it's good. Um, I don't think we should be afraid of inviting people into the experience of the church as part of the process and just recognizing, look, I'm not going to try to convince you because I'm not going to cede the, the ground that I have to convince you under these, under these terms. Um, I'm just going to invite you to experience it and believe that God is a person who you can meet. So. What's that? Sure. How about okay. Ole Miss? Yeah, so I mean, we already have the rhythm of, of Sunday worship built in, and and I think I mean, uh, so at, at our church we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday, and I, I I think that's one way of 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 helping separate that and recognize this is something sacred we do on this day, right? But then we have, um, you know, we have Easter, right, and we have Christmas, and. Um, you know, those are at least basic opportunities for us to do exa exactly that. Um, I don't know. You, have you know, I, I think I've seen churches doing things like um, there's a, a church, a friend of mine, pastors, where they open the beginning of every single year with 40 days of prayer and fasting. Um, they, they try to sort of create inflection points in, in similar ways in the life of the church. There's something beautiful to me about the church calendar and, and the liturgical calendar where it's this idea of we're part of a global thing that's happening, but we're Protestants, so that's probably not going to happen. Um, but, but learning from the calendar, I think fundamentally that if we look at the church calendar as a pastoral tool that was used by pastors who were trying to immerse people in, over a long period of time in the story of the gospel, I think there are ways that we can sort of contextualize and reinvent that in our own congregations. Yeah, we've I've seen this a lot in um, in like with the church planting and with church revitalization and things like that where where pastors are coming in going how do we create this kind of stuff? And I think you have to move very very slowly. Anytime you're transitioning anything in a church, you have to move slowly because everyone's a traditionalist even if they think they're not. They <laughs> like the way things are. Um, 
and so whenever you start to change things, you move very slowly. But I think, I think slow steps towards, you know, I, I would agree with Alan. I think the importance of the, the sacraments are, are tremendous. So slow steps towards incorporating the Lord's Supper in, in our gatherings, slow steps towards incorporating liturgical ideas, even if it's not, you know, you don't start doing Cranmer tomorrow or everyone's going to hate you. Um, but liturgical ideas, you know, adding uh, prayers of confession and, and words of assurance, um, uh, slow, slow baby steps with your church, and lots of explanation, um, lots of here's why this matters, here's why we're taking this step and, and making, you know, making these kinds of changes. But once you've done that, I think, at least in my own experience, once you s- sort of get those elements in your service, it's pretty hard to go back. Like, once you start practicing them, you're like, okay, I'm not, not doing this again. All right, somebody had it. Let's see. You in the white stripes, black stripes. So, could you speak to how secularism the temptation is going to be to look to closer models to structure all of our institutions, right? Um, the New Testament is feels further away than a business business management strategy, right? Um, so, you know, I can't give you examples about specific institutions that have done these things, but um, but, but I, I would say that that you know uh, the temptation to look towards something closer to home rather than look to you know the New Testament or or long church traditions um, is is an example of how. Uh, secularism sort of flattens everything so that, that, that we feel like, okay, what's going to be the most efficient way to do this? And that's the question asked, not what is the right way to do this. Yeah. That's pretty general, but, but I think that's, yeah. 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 So, and, and this is a great question. And if you don't know, there, you know, most of these companies, the social media companies, the, the people who design your smartphones, they hire people who study persuasive design. And, and uh, you know, this is the same sort of field that goes into casinos, right? How do we give you the sights, the sounds, the, 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 the colors, uh, the positive reinforcement to release enough dopamine so that you continue to stay on Instagram and you continue to keep scrolling? So they have a direct incentive to cultivate in you habits that are not good for your soul. Now, I do not think that we have to abandon this technology. I think we can use it with discernment. And, uh, uh, but we need to go in with eyes that recognize they, this technology was not designed to make us better human beings. It was not. Okay? They want your eyeballs. Your, your attention is one of the most important or you know, the highest uh, 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 commodities you know, in the current market. So I do think we need spiritual discipline. And, and, and as people have been asking based on this book, okay, well, what do you suggest? Should I just get off social media or how much time? And, and I think this has to, we have to cultivate a mindset of perpetual discernment. And the reason for that is, uh, if you're a parent, you know this, you know, you, you're, you know, you confront your kids about their use of, uh, of, of Facebook or Instagram and then they're like, oh, I'm not on that anymore. I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm on Snapchat. And then you're like, oh, cool. And so you investigate this new platform. And you're like, okay, I got it. Now I know what's wrong with this. And you confront them again. And they're like, cool. Uh, now I'm on this other thing. And uh, so if our, and this happens to us as adults too, right? So if our mindset is not, okay, I need to be perpetually examining myself, examining my use of this in this particular context, then uh, we're just going to be swept away by the technology and we'll always be playing catch up. And, and that's not, that's a terrible place to be. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org/slash donate.